Hello, Podwalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Go- of Goblin Lore. Uh, today we want to talk about magic stories going someplace no magic story has gone before, to science fiction. Uh, there have been a number of worlds and stories that borrowed elements that would normally be considered science fiction, and, and we really want to talk about that. Um, and to provide some context for talking about magic being big sci-fi, we want to talk about that in, in some of the smaller things that have been in the sets. Um, to help us dig into that and to talk about fantasy properties, other fantasy properties that have dipped into sci-fi. We have a, a friend of mine who you know, uh, has some experience with writing and narrative stuff. So, Reinhard, can you introduce yourself and answer our opening question? What's uh, one element of science fiction that you really love that may or may not port very well to magic? Hi, uh, my name is Reinhard Suarez, and I am a, a writer and editor. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, you can find me at uh, thereinhardexperience.com, all one word. Generally, don't you know, uh, use social media. So that's basically the best place you can find me. And uh, so one piece of uh, sci-fi that um, may not work very well in, in fantasy, that's interesting um, because I, I do think that most things in sci-fi actually do apply or, or can apply to fantasy. Um, I think specifically the very, very techie, like heavy, heavy uh, sci-fi, hard sci-fi, as it were, um, has a harder time in fantasy because you largely don't need that level of explanation for things. So I, I would think that if you want to get into like the technical nitty gritty of how a, how a machine works, it's not that important. I think that would be a place where I would identify. So like the things like the specifications and kind yeah. of what's the power of the engines or something like that, that there's a lot more yeah. detail to. Okay. Yeah. And, and hard science fiction for people who aren't are used to the terms too, tends to be very, very science driven and based on the, our current understandings of real science and building science fiction out of that. Right. And a lot of times so, fantasy takes place in a non-Earth world um, that may or may not have different physics. And so a lot of those principles don't actually apply. Yeah. And you have your things like, you know, Star Trek are a lot of fun and is fa- uh, sci-fi, but they tend to be on the other end of the spectrum from hard sci-fi. Right. And I would say, too, that that's an interesting concept that you talked about with the different physics um, or kind of like atmospheres and things that we see. Because uh, that's so I'm Hobbs Q uh, and I can be found on Twitter at Hobbs Q or at the Goblin Lore pod. I also stream at uh, twitch.tv uh, slash Hobbs Q. And I was going to kind of talk about uh, space travel, but the, the physics question also is very interesting now that you bring that up. Uh, because we, I don't, I think that we kind of have, we've had this episode with discussing sparks and all that, but we see people spark from plane to plane with kind of out really a discussion about like, yes, is the environment the same or the rules of physics the same on this? Um, so that is another element that I think could be interesting. But I think space travel, uh, that's the element to me that we tend to see planeswalkers spark and they're the ones that are able to move. Uh, most of what we have seen is taking place on individual planes that people can't traverse, like the non-planeswalkers. So if we had kind of more of a planetary system, 
I think that would be something that I think would be interesting that I don't know if we've gotten from magic where you could actually maybe travel between planets within a system and that be the kind of focal point of the story. Yeah. And I don't know that even the early planar travel stuff in the early storylines dealt with that. Those were more portals from planet to planet. Yeah, I think that's how it was handled. Mm-hmm. Oh, I suppose I should introduce myself. I'm Alex Newman, <laughs> found on Twitter at Mel underscore Chronicler. Um, and and uh, my answer is another one that I don't think definitely doesn't really fit with, wouldn't fit in magic. But And we'll see if I how well I can explain this. So I figured of, you were just going to say that this was another <laughs> one that doesn't actually answer the question. But no. it was a completely different question that you came up with on your own. No, this Even time, though... You created this question. <laughs> yes. No, this time I'm answering the question. I'm okay. <laughs> trying to figure out how to, how, how exactly to, to describe this concept. So this isn't something that's in every sci-fi that I love, but some of the sci-fi um, franchises that I love the most have Earth and humans from Earth at some point in the past, and they provide a vision of the future that can make me optimistic because sometimes current events don't do that. And so I think like Mass Effect is a video, hands down my favorite video game franchise, provides a vision of the future that is, despite the fact that in the first game, you are investigating a species that wipes out all sentient life every 50,000 years, the game still provides a very hopeful and optimistic vision of the future. And, and that's a thing that, I mean, magic can't really pull Earth, and I think they've we, we've talked a little bit about when they've pulled, you know, real world um, inspiration and like with the Arabian Nights and how that really wasn't great. And I suspect that they're going to try to never, ever, 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 ever do that again. So that's just a thing that really doesn't port well. And that's something that, that makes sense that it kind of doesn't work with fantasy because the whole point of that element anyway is that it is in the future of our current timeline. I mean, I'm almost thinking even our dystopian worlds that we've had kind of have more of a hope than some maybe sci-fi literature does. Yeah, and there is still the ability to bring in some of that, you know, to talking about taking things into a, a another world to kind of tell those stories. Um, you can still do some of that, but there is some very specific elements of some of these properties that I really like that 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 are things that help me like latch onto and love those particular that gives you hope in some ways you know that you can get from here to there and and look for something positive into the future yeah like uh there's a there's a sci-fi series and i I can't remember the author or the series name, but it takes place (laughs) far enough in advance where well one of the elements they specifically talk about is like humans run into this there, there's this whole like galactic gathering of all these species that can trace their origins back to this species that went and uplifted everybody um and humans can't but we ran into this one species that was like oh hey you guys are kind of neat let us help you you know so well humans had solved sort of the the earth is dying problems but there was still lots of evidence of it and this species is like let's us help you brush this under the rug so that when the rest of the galaxy finds you they don't think that you're super ir- irresponsible at this point because you aren't anymore and there's a piece of me that goes 
yeah, that would be great if humans could actually survive long <laughs> enough to be able to hide the evidence of being irresponsible for a long time with their planet. I can I can see that. Um, I think that uh, while there isn't strictly Earth in a lot of these fantasy settings, including magic, right? There still can be that level of hope. Mm-hmm. It's it has to be done through allegory and metaphor. There yeah. can be, yeah. Which sometimes are layers that filter and make it not quite as strong, but still, th- those elements can definitely be there. And and especially on more individual levels in in fantasy and science fiction removed from Earth, you can get a lot of those hopes, you know, elements of hope and and future Absolutely. is brighter. But anyway, so that's the opening question. Let's uh, let's move into our topic. So uh, I know you've been you've been looking really looking forward to this, Reinhardt. Do you want to start the conversation with with some places where science fiction has been in magic? <laughs> Sure. Um, so I would say that magic has endeavored to, at least in the more recent times, to be very fantasy-based. I mean, we can tell from the artwork, it's got a much cleaner but very fantasy-esque uh, bent to it. I would say um, further back in, in magic's past and magic's lore, um, it had a much more mixed kind of uh weird um like strange tales ish pulpish uh origin um and you can see this i think the biggest place where you see this um is is the phyrexians them being kind of these machine-esque um angular like kind of sci-fi baddies in a way they're kind of borg if if you're a star trek fan they have an element of the borg they have an element of um the alien from alien as the black uh, oil from um uh, from from X Files. X Files. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, we and, and even when you look at the origins of of Urza's power, you know, where it's it wasn't like some magic that was um created or discovered. He literally stumbled upon this like uh gateway buried in the sand, you know, in a cave. And um, because uh, he was curious and a jerk, he kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you could you could level upon him uh, basically dooming Dominaria. <laughs> um, that, you know, that is a much more sci-fi-esque origin story than it is a fan- a traditional fantasy. And we've managed yeah. to get in more anti-Urza discussion to the oh, cast. Yeah. It's this great. is like I mean, a running topic. Yeah, I mean, the, the, Urza is such an interesting character, and he is I would say Urza is very much more a sci-fi kind of character, because he is not a hero in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> he is a jerk. He is a, he is a, a eugenicist. He, he absolutely is. No, no bones about it. Alex, did you um, prep him for this episode? Like, do I not know that this is actually something that you've been planning? This is for funny. A very long this time? is funny because I was, I was. <laughs> um, this is one of my like favorite parts about Magic's lore. And then I was listening to some of the previous episodes, and I'm like, oh, they talked about this already. All right, I'm going in. There's always room <laughs> to talk about this. There's always yeah. room. Oh, yeah. So he he 
as a a really problematic character. Um, we see these this type of character in a lot of sci-fi. We see, um, I would say, a a good comparison can be made with um, is it General or Admiral Thrawn in in uh, Ooh, Star Admiral Wars? Admiral, I think it's Admiral. Um, where you understand what he's trying to do, and in some ways you sympathize with his position, but you you cannot condone the way he goes about it. Yeah. Like, I understand why Urza does not like the them as responsible for his brother's death. He also sees them in many ways responsible for the degradation of, of Dominaria and, and, and all this stuff. Urza is incapable of seeing his own complicity in this. Yeah. Which makes him a tragic figure, um, but he's not a black and white figure. Like, uh, you, so a part of you wants to root for him, but you can't. That's what makes him interesting. That's what I think in fantasy, in traditional high fantasy, um, Lord of the Rings, you don't have that kind of character very much. Um, and and so I think that's where sci-fi kind of starts to to speckle in because you have the concept of oh my god i mean like his whole his whole project like after after the brothers war is like this <laughs> generations long like <laughs> genetic tampering of bloodlines are you mm-hmm. kidding me yeah <laughs> that's crazy yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but most of his plans are very science fiction based. You look at he's building technology. I mean, like the one little piece is like the whole legacy collection thing is is a collection of artifacts. That's a little more fantasy, though. The fact that he built some of those is like, well, maybe that you're you're drifting a little more sci-fi. But yeah, yeah, or, he, yeah I mean, it's something like the Fifth Element. You know, there's yeah. still the artifacts. There still is that. It's it's almost that line between sci-fi fantasy that yeah yeah and it's it's not everything he does but yeah most of his plots and plans are more science fiction types or, or storylines you would see in things we would think of as more science fictiony you don't see a lot of time travel stories in fantasy on uh, no not not straight up like like happens in magic men you know especially during the time time spiral you know mm-hmm. that sort of thing is very sci-fi yeah yeah, that's true. You don't get a lot of post-apocalypse in fantasy either. <laughs> oh, not not in the way that it was portrayed there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would definitely say that uh, Urza is his archetype is mad scientist. He's Rick from Rick and Morty. Um, oh, he doesn't care. He may or may not have noble goals, but his the way he does, goes about it is completely ignoble. Yeah, like he, there are no boundaries that he has, and and that's that's what makes him an interesting character. Um, it makes him a really hard character. To... Yeah. So right. I'm thinking too, in terms of uh, you know, uh, so I, I you know we talked about some of like the the Phyrexians have kind of these machines like the walkers. Even the art for Void, we get basically a mech on. So that was one that I was looking at. There's like this mm. mech on the art for, for Void, uh, which yeah. is from Invasion, which is, you know, yeah. that, that is what and, we're talking about here. And that was actually an invention of Urza's, that yes. mech. Yeah. Titan engine, right? Yes. Uh, and that's, um, 
I wanted to get to that eventually because engines are something that's very forgotten, but are like the most literal piece of sci-fi that Magic has. Yes. Yeah. It, that it always struck me. I remember seeing the art for like Void, um, even the original art for Vindicate. Uh, so, you know, Rage. I think yeah. is another one that has that. And no. so you know, we kind of got that in the art. I remember seeing it when it first occurred, or when I actually first figured out what was going on. It was kind of that, wow, this is the weird, or this this is sci-fi and magic. Like the, I mean. The joke is that the Vindicate art is almost like the Death Star being blown up, you know, like yes. it, it kind yeah. of it, it's almost like there is. There's ships there, you know, we have the skyship Weatherlight that actually travels now. It doesn't travel by means that we would think of being with sci fi necessarily. But yeah. this is where I remember, like I said, the Vindicate art. I remember one of the first things I saw was an altar of it to be yeah. Star Wars related. So, <laughs> yeah, and and to go to the Frexians a little bit, and I think this maybe we want to talk about the old versus the new too. But I, I think especially with the old, there was definitely sci-fi. Like I, I have two cards I threw in our show notes here: Frexian Walker from Visions, Frexian Hulk from Tempest. So these are both early years of the game. Um, both of them have art that looks more like it came out of Terminator, like yeah, like absolutely. post. You know, after Skynet rises, so you don't have to make them look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. These are Terminators, right? And and I had posted earlier uh, the Extruder, yep. which is um, it has a great piece of flavor text, which is as the invasion drew closer, Urza's means began to resemble Phyrexia's end. <laughs> and I I I love that uh, our our mutual friend um, Tim me to this and i'm like this is perfect yeah. um because it it again it's it's about the the, <laughs> the issues that urza has but also the fact that like the art itself looks like a tank yeah it looks like you know a tank that would be made like around world war one or maybe right pre-world war one a little bit as they're starting to build but there's like literal treads on this thing and there are treads and there are like smokestacks which makes me think about the card smokestacks I mean, there are things here and there, and even like Phyrexian Walker, compare it to an, uh, the um, compare it to Hangerback Walker. I mean, they kind of look the same. Yeah. I mean, and there was some some of the the non Phyrexian things in early, very early Magic. Like Antiquity, some of the stuff was a little more fantasy ish, like a you know, Mishra's War Machine. I mean, like you could kind of yeah. like that looked like a wagon. I don't know, uh, they were, like uh, Juggernaut. Yeah, and oh, like yeah. some of those you still had definite war machines that felt a little more steeped in fantasy. But yeah, that that Phyrexian stuff really kind of was pushing it in another direction. Do what do you think about the newer Phyrexians though? I th- I think they're they pulled back and things actually look a little more fantasy-ish, but I guess I would definitely say like um like when you look at like the Praetors, mm-hmm. um it, they're much more fantasy. I mean, um, what's the red praetor? Um, Urbrath? Yeah, like he looks like a dragon. Mm-hmm. You know, he yeah. is very dragon-like. So, uh, and and all of, all the other ones very much seem more fluid, less mechanical. Um, and and I think there's a good actual story reason for that. They they really came up with a good story reason for that. So. 
Well, I mean, even look at the art on Phyrexian Juggernaut. It it, it functions kind of as as the Juggernauts do that we see in in previous magic lore and i was looking through the art for those juggernauts and you definitely see like alex said earlier arts of it they're kind of is it's less machine like it's more Mm -hmm. it's more like a war machine sorry than more like a tech machine and then we get to the like phyrexian juggernaut versus the dark still juggernauts that still have to attack each turn as able but they're more in line with their plane and the one for phyrexian it, it just talks about like it looks like you were saying it almost looks like that infection piece to it well i mean that's the joke i mean it does have infect so there is like that shift i think kind of what you're saying reinhardt for the storyline between machines that kind of take over planes versus an infection that takes over planes right when when it moved to eridan into new phyrexia mm-hmm. um it was much more characterized as like it's the infection of the oil Versus yeah. someone building up this this infrastructure to create these machines. Yeah, and this is a discussion for another episode that I would love to have. But I think when they narratively switched to the the from the old Phyrexians to the new Phyrexians, they went with much more of the infection plague archetype. I don't think the old Phyrexians had that nearly as strongly. There was mm-hmm. a little bit of that, but I think the infection, infections and plagues were used more as a weapon to just kill. They were not a conversion process. It wasn't the assimilate things. Yeah. They, they were not in the org as much, even though they that, looked like them more. That made, I mean, that's actually switching from one sci-fi trope to another, where right. you, had, um, you had heroes like Azuri. Like, it made it much more tragic. It made it much harder to deal with. You can if you blow up a machine, okay, it's a machine. You blow up your former friend. That's hard. Yeah. Um, and it's even harder to see your former friend, like Glissa. This is like <laughs> someone yeah. who, a character who I hope really returned. She's got so much potential. Um, I really feel like so Alex hard. just completely set Reinhardt up to be on this show. <laughs> yeah, like, now he's talking about Glissa. these benefits of Glissa. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's a great character. Agreed. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, you want, want to have characters, I think, and in, in Magic has set up a lot of different characters to do this. You want to have characters that you know that they're going to fail, but you want them to succeed so badly so badly that you're willing to to give them a chance over and over again because you just you just want then that's why people even though objectively urza's a horrible person you want to root for him because you're like okay i can kind of understand where you're coming from once again the the opposite outcome was also not good yeah (laughs) you you don't want him to fail but at the same time you're kind of like really urza come on you want I mean, him to succeed and not do all those horrible things to succeed. Yeah, but he can't. The tragedies that he can't, like, even just as and like, even inadvertently, he's like, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm just going to go my uh, go about my business. And oh, wait, Sarah's realm? I just destroyed that. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> By happenstance, he's not a good like. He should never. No one should ever look up to him. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have more to say on the Phyrexians, or do we want to go into, like, Mirrodin? Because that seems like a good pivot point there. It is. It kind of, once again, we see the transition there. Mirrodin really is 
right? I mean, we've talked about this kind of before. It was an it's it's an artificial plane. It almost is created to be non living elements. Yeah. Um. To me, Mirrodin is is been kind of what we to me when I was looking at this. That's what I think of when I think sci fi and magic. Definitely think it's got Mirrodin. Me very much screams that pulp that um, John Carter, right? Like you when you read the adventures of of um, people on the plane of uh, Glissa and, and Missouri and like them doing their their thing there. To me, that's like the wilderness of space. Yeah, I mean, and and that was. A place where you we really saw actually for the first time since the Phyrexians, you saw a little bit of the the machine and people like together. But even beyond that, just this artificial plane, something completely constructed, um, out of like metal, like that is sci-fi. It's definitely sci-fi, and I, I think like you also get um so an element of sci-fi that. I find super interesting is the, and this will go right to Mass Effect, is the divide between organics and, and synthetics. And to what you could possibly characterize as the desire of a synthetic to become organic or to have the traits of organic. So you have Memnarch, right? And so Memnarch suddenly feels incomplete because he doesn't have this spark that he sees like organic things have and so like his entire quest is to like harness that you know and, and and destroy everything that will stand in his way you know that is that is your mad ai that's your mad computer mm -hmm. uh, troll. yeah i mean and even pulls in with um oh i can't remember what it is the the his little security thing where he could see the entire planet all at once yeah i mean the so all all these you're right like it's it's absolutely uh the computer system yeah thank you well and, and and we also get to see i think like you're saying uh i mean another character that we love on the show is Slowbad, and Slowbad is what we find <laughs> is in is in the caverns with these machines the levelers you know he's he's mm -hmm. actually found these he doesn't really know a ton about them but he's like the art of his card is him like basically working on um well he's working on uh uh wow the golems right yeah but it, but it's uh he was working on bosch bosch right like isn't that the oh, yeah. artwork on slow bad is he's actually working on bosch yeah because they come across and find it i mean and so it's like it is that and then and then bosch becomes part of basically his little traveling group with him and glissa and and we see there that like and that and this is where you kind of get that transition from, from fight of fantasy where very much like these tinkers like you know you have goblin welder goblin yeah. engineer mm -hmm. um and they you know which i think makes goblins so cool is um that affinity for machinery that meant affinity for like tinkering with things yeah yeah at, well, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, we're kind of partial to that, especially in the Mirrodin. Yeah, and especially the Mirrodin goblins, because you look at most of the other planes, you know, rocks are like the, the height of goblin technological advancement, and they use those rocks 
to yeah. destroy everyone else's technological advancement. I think yeah. that's probably why they consider them number one. But then you get to Mirrodin, and that's where, you, not all of them, but that's where you see a lot of those artificers and tinkerers among goblins. Mm. And I would say... I, I Go ahead. Um, just kind of like us looking at, you know, uh, just even Karn's kind of vision for Mirrodin is much more of a um, sci-fi type of element. Yeah, that's very... Um, Oh, I can't think of his name. The big blue guy from Watchmen. Oh, Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan. That's yeah. uh, that's what I always think of. Because, I don't know. I that ha- uber-utopian ideal of, like, actually read- creating a perfect space. It, yeah, and, and like, I, I, I will admit I have not actually read the comic, but the in the movie, that's, you know, he's building that contraption that is just this mathematical perfection or something and and i I, that's what i think of when you talk about karn's like original vision from mirrodin i i think i think it's exactly what talking right we want to move on to kaladesh or we got some more to talk about in mirrodin um I think I think yeah we can move. Right. So Kaladesh was an interesting one because I think they were very th- this is the most recent of all these and I th- I think Wizards is very sensitive trying to keep magic in science fiction by the time Kaladesh had come out that had been conversations that we're having where they're not in science fiction in fantasy. And and so Kaladesh we definitely have elements of sci-fi but it's much much more steampunk inspired which is kind of the sci-fi version of fantasy. So we see a lot of, in the general world, we see the little contraptions and we see the, the thopters and things like that have a very steampunky feel to them. Um, I don't know, do you have, I, I, this isn't in the show notes or anything, but do you have any feelings about steampunk versus sci-fi, Reinhard? Um, I... I love steampunk. Uh, it's such it's so much more based on the aesthetic um, of steampunk is kind of really what gave rise to the genre. I don't know if you could characterize any one story as being like as quintessentially steampunk, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you absolutely can tell from the artwork that that's what they were going for, and I think they pulled it off. Like yeah. all these little like in the backgrounds of certain things um certain cards where there are these little like uh uh little servants like the little clockwork servants and like you see bomat couriers just is a courier like it brings packages from here to there um there's a bit of whimsy which i think is very fun i i love kaladesh for that like i i like the cards even though um if someone uh played smuggler's copter on me turn two i kind of wanted to flip the table over Right, like you're like I I hate sci-fi now, and I'm no longer yeah, gonna yeah. engage with it. There's a vehicle right. attacking me. Yeah, a helicopter is attacking me. Yeah, in three, you know. So, <laughs> um, I I like the whimsy of it. That it really had just such a unique look, and I I really uh, enjoyed. Um, it made it made you like, you know, when you put together combos and when you're using energy. Was such a flavorful set. 
That's right. I forgot energy was literally a mechanic. Energy was a thing. And the whole idea too is there was this like inventors fair going on, you know, so, but I I do, it's like steampunk is really kind of that, where is the line on that? And I'm, I I guess I'm interested in what you guys kind of think when we're talking sci-fi versus fantasy. I, I feel like it's kind of the middle space in the Venn diagram in a lot of ways. Um, as, and and Reinhardt said, it, the, the aesthetic piece is very important to, to steampunk. You tend to have your storylines are a little more maybe fantasy-ish, in, in at least some of the steampunk that I'm familiar with, but you definitely have that aesthetic. And I think they went with a different one in Kaladesh. It wasn't the same like gears and things, but part of it is because steampunk itself is based so much on Earth in a lot of weird ways. Victorian aesthetics, Victorian history. Yeah. And and just with, you know, but like airships and like you, you have the Zeppelins and things like um but Kaladesh did a very similar thing where there's a lot of filigree aesthetic. You have lots of added elements onto things that aren't necessarily part of the workings of the machine, but they give it the same look that is kind of part of the world where this is the style that the people like participate in. It, it's um, so that's where I definitely felt steampunk, despite the fact that you didn't have those specific earth sort of keys that are usually what signify steampunk. Um, but yeah. the difference between like steampunk and sci it's it's to me and maybe I'm not as familiar because to be honest I kind of like steampunk but it's a it's not something I've ever gone super deep in but it, it to me it feels more like a fantasy setting a lot of them are the storylines are a little more fantasy driven just with trappings that are more science fictiony I think you're right on the ball with that one where the the plots and a lot of the characters tend toward more f- uh fantasy because again like the <clears throat> the root time period earth time period that it's based on was actually you could make an argument pre-mechanization uh or or kind of in the throes of the initial industrial revolution so like you couldn't have computers and, mm-hmm. and, and have it remain steampunk yeah, unless you get a lot of this, the clockwork things where they're like, you know, we we can make this little clockwork like clock or this little clockwork machine in the real world with some of those technologies. So we're just going to extrapolate that and say that somehow we made this clockwork golem that's basically a robot, except it isn't a robot because it's clockwork. Right, right, and that's kind of where you get the fantasy part. You don't, you're not so worried about how it actually works. Mm-hmm. Just uh, are given that it's clockwork, it's made of metal, it's an artificial construct. How would actually work? Uh, magic. Yeah, and that and that brings it a little more to the. Uh, oh wow, am I totally losing all my genre names? The uh, <laughs> like the Star Wars, Star Trek end of sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, the- uh, kind of it, it, science fantasy, I guess it would be called. So, uh, Alex, like you said, we kind of had Kaldash. I, I did add one in this morning, uh, kind of just wanting to bring up, which is the Boros Legion and the Parhelion. So the Parhelion that I think most people know is the Parhelion 2, because that's the one that we have art for. 
which is actually a rebuilt version. Um, so the art is by Titus Slunter. Uh, and sci-fi, I know, is his, when he was on our show, he talked about, like, the sci-fi art and, um, like, the covers of sci-fi books that he talked about, like, that type of artwork is stuff that he loves with ships and everything in it. And the, if you look at the art for Parhelion 2, you see propulsion kind of bringing it up from, it's like a skyship. That's what we know about it. But it has definite propulsion that is fire. There's something that's kind of bringing it there. But th the reason I also bring this up is the Parhelion 1, before it was destroyed, it talks about in Dissension, I believe, that it kind of traveled. It was basically they wanted to kind of find out about the Planeswalker visitors who had stopped coming. So the angels flew it to the edge of Ravnica's existence, and they encountered only emptiness. We almost kind of got to this concept of, well, is that space? What does that mean beyond Ravnica? <laughs> um, so, like, we kind of get to that located above it. It's destroyed. It's rebuilt. And they used it during the, the battle of War of the Spark. But the Parhelion kind of looks at maybe, can we push that boundary to what space travel or a skyship that might be able to go beyond what a plane is? Because we've had this discussion on here with Sparks and with planes in general, what they are. That I'm sorry, I was I was laughing because I realized you're, you're talking about the Parhelion being pushed to the edge of Ravnica, and they only see nothing. And then you get to have Ravnikans argue, you know, is it scientists arguing about the same thing that atmospheric and and you know like astrophysicists argue about now as to where exactly does space start and Earth stop? in the atmosphere like there's there's all sorts of layers and we can all agree what those layers are but we can't quite agree on which one is earth and which one is no longer earth and i would say that that is but that you know like that is kind of like the first element of space travel that idea that you're yeah. pushing beyond that boundary and that the fact is they don't know what was beyond there we talked about it this at the top of the cast is there different physics atmosphere everything mm -hmm. that could you know that's an area that we that to me is more sci-fi yeah. you know yeah could we get into some like ancient world cosmologies where what some of these planes are like actually flat? Oh, I mean, not only that, I mean, we, we can actually see evidence of that. You know, we, if we look at Sarah's realm, I mean, it was, you could argue whether it's round or flat, but it, it looked at least on art to be just a series of floating islands. Um, and I, you know, so this is where, and I love, I, I love that because you know, you, we talk about planes walking and plane hopping, but we don't know. We're never told if there's anything between planes. Are they are they standing in place and just shifting the plane around them, or are they actually traveling to a physical location that's millions of miles away? Now, is there a physical depth to them? Um, I mean, we know a little bit that there's this the idea of the blind eternities, yeah, um, which is kind of this area that they use to travel. But how planes are in relation to each other in terms of physical space or is it dimensions? We don't know a ton about. I yeah, think that's and where people talk about the lack of sci-fi. Yeah, and and the blind eternities are mostly talked about in the old school context of planeswalkers. I can't remember if they use that between the for the for the new ones or not. Or if they're a little more direct world to world, because from what I understand, from what I remember of old school walkers, like they kind of enter the blind eternity before moving into planes or something. But it's been a long time since I read some of those early stories. Well, so the most recent that we have on it is the the Eldrazi are 
exist in the blind eternities mm. so th there is still like this I mean, that's is still in magic speaking um, of of vaguely sci-fi things like that's a very cthulhu oh story that oh, yeah god is, is actually kind of old sci-fi right and there's that kind of you know that's where we get i mean i think that's the border again yeah but yeah, yeah. so the, the, the concept of the blind attorneys but yeah like we we what does it mean when we talk about planes and one thing that you guys mentioned is there have been some other and these are where I know a lot less, and that's why I'm glad that you guys are going to talk a little bit about this, is the other kind of properties that have used mm -hmm. this fantasy properties. And that's a good transition, so I have to to ruin it slightly by I just found the 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 term I was trying to find earlier. So space opera. Oh yeah. Is yeah, a yeah. genre term for science fiction that kind of doesn't care about the science so much. Like the science is whatever, but we want to tell like a really cool story. And so you usually you'll see when you talk about science fiction genres, a lot of times you'll see space opera on one side, hard sci-fi on another, and, you know, kind of talking about where stories fall in this spectrum. And I think a lot of, a lot of the time that we've seen magic dip into sci-fi, it's more on the space opera side because they don't want to like dig into where the physics, how the physics work. I, I think that's that is absolutely where it tries to balance itself. Um, because it, I think if you get too technical, you kind of lose that magic. It is called magic. Yeah, yeah, and that's. I mean, there's a whole conversation about genres of fantasy where you you explain the magic too hard, and it. Some sometimes you have the more hard fantasy where you actually explain all the mechanics of the magic and and. Magic, the card game, has pushed in that direction a little bit, but has mostly, especially as of late, gone more kind of the other side, where they don't really explain. You just kind of know. You get mana from land, I guess, and then you use it to cast spells. And <laughs> like, the mechanics of how the game work are very specific, but how that works in world, they really seem to not really want to talk about, which is fine. Like Sometimes you can get down in the, in the weeds a little too much. And there are people who enjoy that, but especially when you're trying to build stories for a game that exists that has these mechanics, it's like, let's just not get down into the nitty gritty of that. Hobbs, where you were kind of, where you were kind of leading off to uh, the property that screams at me, and that's mostly, and probably to Alex, because we're kind of old school RPGers, is Spelljammer. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, Spelljammer is a campaign setting from the second edition of D&D. So around, would you say, late 80s, early 90s is when Spelljammer came out? Um, 90s in there somewhere would be my guess. I, it's, I was playing then, but I was young, and we were... My, I played D&D with my dad and his friends, and they were very, very fantasy centric they did not really mm. touch the sci-fi stuff so i'm familiar with some of these a little bit but i'm i never really played Spelljammer's cosmology is actually based on um concept of the universe that once like philosophers conjectured over basically every world in in D D. so you know dragonlands forgotten realms all those different campaign worlds that you um, can get in second edition at least is contained in what's called a crystal sphere, which is the the actual planet and the surrounding space around it. 
and outside the crystal spheres, so there are a bunch of crystal spheres hanging off in the void. And between these crystal spheres is just the void. It's space. It's like nothing. And you can use a ship called a spell jammer to travel between the crystal spheres. So um, if you are from uh, Toril, which is the Forgotten Realms world, if you can somehow get onto a spell jammer, you can pilot it outside your own crystal sphere and then head toward uh, Kryn, which is the Dragonlance world, and then drop off there. Um, I'll go and ahead. You look at art of these spell jammers, and it is... Yeah, and you, you're looking at some of these published 89, uh, 1991. So yeah, the, the late 80s into the early 90s and mid 90s, maybe even. Um, but it's like there's definitely Spellship Weatherlight or, or Skyship Weatherlight definitely uh, looks like it, it had some inspiration here in the, the Spelljammer ships because they are big old mast ships, wooden ships, like you had some fantasy ship that's just flying in the stars. And the the one ship I always always remember is from the cover, I think, of the Spelljammer box set, which is a giant squid. Uh, it's a squid-looking um, spaceship, which, again, Mass Effect, you wonder if they got uh, inspiration from that. Um, but this is, I mean, you know, like, if we're thinking with our Hasbro brain here, um, you know, Wizards does own the property... You know, does own Spelljammer, I believe. I mean, could they possibly make it? Uh, they possibly make it. Um, you know, canon to magic. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, and and that's where. And so this was, you know, well before Wizards of the Coast bought TSR, but still, it's part of the property. It's part of D and D's history, and so that's kind of the question: is like. So how much of this are they thinking about, you know, be, drawing inspiration from? How much of this are they going to maybe drift towards? Or are they just going to completely ignore it and pretend it never happened? I, I mean, I think I think as they're exploring new... Kind of pushing into new genres, into new cultures, doing all these different things, you know, the Ikoria set is kind of the, uh, you know, like the... Um, it takes aspects of like the Japanese monster movies, right? Which is, you know, I yeah, it's our kaiju. We you know we right, get kind right. of beasts and yeah, and especially we, right. we we got this cool thing where they even leaned into it with the alt art and actually because they had access to some of those properties, made cool versions of like <laughs> like actual Godzilla art, like the moth is Mothra, which is just cool. Oh, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, everyone knows that we would have all called it that anyway. Well, yeah. that's right. So just give it to us. So that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like, how cool would it be if we had a set that focused on travel between, you know, planes and like these swashbuckling, like, you know, who knows? We have, uh, we have the weather light. Mm-hmm. How cool would it be to see those adventures? That crew we just got in- introduced to them. Um, I mean, Dominaria, like, is well introduced to them or the not? Crew. Introduced to the new crew, right? Yeah. Dominaria is such a cool set. Like individually, the card set is so awesome. Play has such cool lore, and it reintroduced a lot of these things to newer players, like the, the Weatherlight and a lot of the Dominaria uh, lore. 
how cool would it be to see them travel from here to there or to answer those the Ravnican questions? You know? Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk That's about what that. We're talk about right, <laughs> like you know, kind of asking what this might look like. What would be the elements? What are the different ways that we could do this beyond what they've already done? We've talked about kind of what they've already done. Um, now, what we know right now in terms of planeswalking and how it's shifted since the mending is that organic material can't really go through it. Um, like, that doesn't have a spark. Now, this is a little hand-wavy because yeah. we have, like, a, the planeswalker that can bring his dog with him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and so, who is that? Is that Jing and Mowu? You, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, like, bring them with... So, like, there is some hand-waviness, but the idea is, in general... Planes walking can only we can't travel through planes artificially like we could on the early days of the weatherlight and kind of go between more than just Dominaria. So the question would become if we're gonna be in this post-mending world, what would you like to see? Kind of how would it look? What would it be like? What what are we thinking here if we're looking at a sci-fi magic world? See, I, I think maybe um Oddly, the 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 whole new way that sparks work would lend into that better, because the old school planar portals that Phyrexia used for the invasion, that you know the the weatherlight used to just hop between multiple planes while working on you know fighting the Phyrexians, like that makes planar travel. I'm sure there were some difficulties to build it and and things, but it it makes it pretty easy from a narrative standpoint. And so there isn't really a good reason to need to like do it the quote unquote hard way and like travel through actual space to go from one, one plane to another to go to maybe a moon that you wouldn't normally be able to, you know, travel to planeswalk to because there, it isn't, there are people there or something. But because you kind of they've kind of boxed out and limited what planeswalking can do a little bit, and even like the planar portal, so we have this planar bridge. But if I remember correctly, like the whole reason the zombies had to be covered in Lazatep is because otherwise they wouldn't go through the bridge, right? Right. That was supposed to be the idea. That's what. Yeah, they needed so, to be the Lazatep so that they could transport across the planar bridge. So yeah, even with this planar bridge now, it's still you're not going to be able to just easily transport people and things place to place. Things may be a little easier, but not people. And so there might be actual reasons for people to take up the Barhelion and figure out how to move between these worlds, at least narratively. Well, and I think that for me, so there's two different directions that I could really see this going. Um, Both of which could be a very interesting way to do it that have their own issues. So, one would be that we actually have a planetary system and we know, you know, we'd have to know kind of more about it. Uh, I think this is where we get to with Ravnica with the Parhelion one coming up against that, like the blackness in the sky and what is beyond, you know, what, what is it, what that was. Um, and so we have that. So maybe we can have actually, you know, that you end up with a planeswalking story or we drop into a brand new story with people we don't know and we, there is kind of the physics behind it, and we understand either spacesuits or ways that they're able to do it. Um, the other way would be for it to take place on something like a research station or a space station, 
so that you are confining it still to like a you know like it could be a just giant like ship uh, like cloud city almost uh, uh, you know that it's above kind of a ground or above the plane that there are people that live among the sky that you could include a lot more science elements too people live in kind of mm-hmm. on a space station they live in these things so i I mean, I think floating was- cities are are also a good fantasy trope too, so that could be a good way for them to bridge that bridge. gap. If they included more of a science element to it, you know, that we're understanding that there is kind of something beyond. I think both of those would be really fascinating and really new ways that uh, new ways for magic, at least, to expand their story. Um, I I am so much like. Um, I'm so much a lover of like delving back into lore and trying to dig up some sort of gap where we can kind of fill in to make what, what we want to happen, happen where, I mean, for me, it would be, it would be looking back in the story of magic and finding opportunities to, to seat in uh, what we want to happen in the future in the past. So, good example of this is uh, Star Trek. We'll go back to Star Trek. Um, when they were trying to create Star Trek 2, they want to do for Star Trek 2. Star Trek 1 really ha- is a is a complete story. So they started mining the old series and they found Khan. And they're like, wait, we, can we do something with this guy? We never really we never really finished his story. He kind of was just marooned on this planet. What, what do we do with him? Um, so if, uh i think a, an interesting idea might be to look at magic lore and see where the gaps are so for me like just throwing spaghetti at the wall a couple ideas i have would be to go back to um those titan engines and so those titan engines were associated with a bunch of planes pre-mending planeswalkers that basically disappeared we've never heard back from them um especially that um well i mean that's not true we did hear a little bit from some of them but a lot of them we just don't hear about um and we also have a line of magic the gathering comic books i don't uh, are you guys familiar with those some... i've read a couple of them because of some of the dac storyline but not the older yeah. ones for sure yeah you yeah, the, the older ones talking about the the ones with featuring Dak and Blackblade. Oh, I did not um, read those. Yeah, so there are a whole bunch of planeswalkers that disappeared. No one has seen them since the comic line was was um whatchamacallit. The comic line was canceled and it was like the issue before the Great Planeswalker War. And so we don't know what happened. And we've <laughs> never heard from them again. What if, what if okay, just imagine all his plans up until War of the Spark, and we can talk about War of the Spark story. I'm not satisfied with it, but um, <laughs> to say the least, the uh, whole point was to try to become a pre-mending planeswalker, right? Well, what if there are pre-mending planeswalkers out there, somehow protected from the mending, and they're going all about all you know? They've explored what it is to travel between 
dimensions, travel between planes. Uh, another avenue is perhaps to go, you, know, you go more recent in time, to, but still at a place where a lot of this interplanet travel was going. Like a crazy idea would be like, uh, I would codename it, you know, the last, the last Metathran outpost. So imagine space station hobs, like you were telling, where where Urza had stationed his his emergency team of Metathrans, and they're the now they're the only Metathrans in the entire multiverse. Everyone else is wiped out, and so they've been there waiting for a trigger that has never come. Like. At some point, wouldn't they be like, what's going on? <laughs> like, it's been a couple thousand years. I'm done. Like, right, I'm right. Bored. Like, yeah. maybe we should be doing something. Have we not gotten the signal? What's going on? And yeah. that's a very sci-fi story of, like, the last outpost or outdated soldier. Where you, the, this soldier from way in the past, um, Altered Carbon is, is this kind of story. Uh, a soldier from the past comes to the future and or it comes into the current time and they're relics and they don't know what's going on, but they have all these powers and this knowledge from this time that people don't know anymore. And that gives them power to do things in this current timeline. So those are maybe some ways of us having these, these, um, entrees or entry points into interstellar travel, interplanar travel. And I guess that's where the, the, I mean, I think that's where the divide is. Are we talking, we can have interplanar versus interstellar. And I think that those are two very different, interesting directions that we could go. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so glad you came on to talk about this, Reinhardt, because there's other, you know, we talk about inter interstellar travel, and that is a big difference between sci-fi and fantasy, but those aren't the only storyline, you know, narrative differences. And that whole idea of, of like the last Metatron, because I, I will say one of my few disappointments with Dominaria is that there was like the Metatron were just gone. Yeah. And I mean, it fits Urza and that was kind of part of the thing. Like the Metatron were this race that he built, he engineered to be the ultimate warriors to fight the Phyrexian invasion. And then he just left them alone to, to, to die out through old age or whatever, and then just never have any more again. But that we, when we came back to Dominaria, there just was no sign that they ever existed, which again kind of fits with Urza's whole thing, but it would have been cool to have that storyline. And I, I love that idea so much. I think, I mean, what was funny is I came back right around, uh, right around, um, Shadows of Rinistrad going into Kaladesh. So I was really confused. I'm like, wait, what are Vidalkins and why do they look like Metathron? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I had to read up. I'm like, oh, okay. They're just completely different. They're just other blue people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to bring up, uh, you know, we, we talk about kind of like how this would look. Um, we've been talking about that for different ways that we can go narratively. One thing that is actually, I've had this discussion with Titus lunter before and i talked to him and he knew that we were recording this today and i even ran the show notes by him because this is a, a something that he has been very passionate about i think even vocal about is he would love to kind of see this plane one element that he has talked about that would be difficult is trying to figure out and this is a, i do think this is an interesting hard part with where we're at with magic versus sci-fi would be what do basic lands look like 
because we still have this concept of needing mana to draw from. So if you're in a space station or you're in an outpost, or even if you're in a planetary system, if we're talking about the sci-fi element of looking at that travel piece, and I, and you know, I separate from the narrative, if we're looking at a functional kind of vehicles with spacecraft and kind of how I would picture it, how do you represent the five elements when they are clearly planet or plane based? I think a quick and easy one that depending on <laughs> how we're telling the story and, and maybe there are better ways and maybe hopefully as we talk through it, we come up with some other things for, for more extrapolated. But if, if you're doing it in a environment where uh, a planetary base or a, a star base that has been created for people to live in, it's, it's kind of easy to just be like, and here is our, artificial you know grasslands or something and and you can kind of represent them there yeah in an environment i mean mountains mountains would be tough lanes i mean sure or you just go real high concept be like here's our irrigation system just water for islands and here is our engines and this is the mountain well i mean we've had like aqueducts right you know like like we've had aqueducts kind of represent um islands or waterways yeah, or uh, swamps if they're overgrown. Right. Or two cases. Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, even like, uh, I really like that one artwork from, I think it's a Ravnica set, where the swamp is actually a sewer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah that, you, you get well, a there was a new one that just came out from Jumpstart that mm. is a, a sewer-based swamp um, with light coming in kind of through it that almost looks like uh, a stained glass window. And it's down yeah. in a sewer, but it's a swamp because it's kind of the underground. So I think that is something that's been actually an issue for wizards though. I yeah, really do believe in them trying to think of how they could do this. I think one kind of, uh, it, it's kind of gimmicky and I, 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 it's a bad idea, but if you look <laughs> at the Theros lands, actually not tied, like the picture, the images are not tied to any land structure. You could kind of get away with at, like the concept of elements in the universe. Mm-hmm. I don't like that because it seems really sketchy. Yeah. Like you're, talking about, you're talking about like the stellar ones that look kind of like yes. they're meant to be the star systems. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I believe well, they were, the, but I believe those are kind of like technically special additions versus like. They was, are, they are. The which ones are not really. Hacks still have kind of. Yeah. And I think that's how wizards kind of hand waves their way around it. But yeah. still, I think I think that could be cool. Just have like a pulsar and be like, "Yeah, it's a mountain." Well, I mean, I, I, <laughs> because, and I would, because we said so. I mean, I would love to see. I mean, for like, I'm thinking for special edition type stuff. Like, there's just so much amazingness yeah. that could be done with this. And but if we're trying to stay thematically correct for story purposes and function, mm-hmm. well, I do you know, think this is an issue, a big it, issue. Oh, it definitely is an issue. But they have talked a lot about. In the last, I don't know, 20 years of the game in particular, like color pie philosophy has evolved a lot. And so it could be interesting as an astronomy nerd for them to be like, we just think that this particular formation is more blue or something like this. This sort of natural formation is a little more red or black. And and I think that could be really interesting if you just have some like brown dwarfs or like real open space be more black just the open void uh like a neutron star i don't know what do you think that'd be more blue that's my first instinct 
you guys familiar with these these terms? I mean, I yeah, like the yeah, levels of light. You mean? Well, yeah, there's that, but I mean, just like the natural formations, because I mean, they just kind of arbitrarily like, well, an island is its own unique form of mana and we've just been doing it for 25 plus years and so we're like oh that makes sense that we have drawn these five specific types of formations on a planet all have their own form of energy and i think they could do that again with natural formations of you know in space but it just it would be hard (laughs) because they would just kind of have to say this is what we're saying y'all just have to go with it. And that's always hard. But I think that would be the case where you'd have to kind of, I think there's kind of no way around some sort of hand waving. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's totally, I mean, we've talked about this with a little bit um, when we talked about the nature of what sparks is, and we talked about the mm-hmm. metaphysics of it and tried to talk about, you know, kind of are there rule rules to this stuff is there actually a science base to it i think alex you've talked about this when we said fantasy there are different theories on schools of magic and Mm -hmm. and what the rules are and and what the limits are versus not um that kind of has some of that to it i think that it could be done i mean i I definitely think that it it could and i think there maybe is people that are better suited for this than i am but i do think that it is kind of thinking about what this kind of would look like. I mean, I, I think for one thing, we get vehicles. I mean, yeah, in the, yeah. the version I am, I mean, I think we get some really cool stuff with that. Uh, I almost like the idea of a planeswalker planeswalking into the middle of like a space station or where the, I, I really love that idea of the, of the, 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 the like blood last threads, like mm-hmm. just have a planeswalker that one we know of or don't, but like ends up in this area that just does not make sense. And yeah, that's such a, cool. a wonderful like so many sci-fi stories begin with someone who winds up in a place that they did not expect and that would be a great entryway yeah and this could one thing that may would they might have to do at least for the version of the story that's currently unrolling in my head is kind of ex- <laughs> examine the nature of what is a plane and what is it about planes that allow planeswalkers to walk to them and is there an element of that that can be replicated in space somewhere could you build a space station that is is planable or planeswalkerable too and like i mean that would would it need to be its own plane yeah karn made his own artificial plane does it have to be that big could he you could make it just a very tiny plane yeah, and, and what is it about a plane that allows people with the spark to walk to them, to travel to them? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, the relationship I, between the plane and the planeswalker. Yeah, and then you can have a story, too, where you know you have a planeswalker that walks to something on accident. Like, maybe you have like the wanderer who, who just goes plane to plane because that's just how her spark works and ends up in the middle of this thing that some other planeswalker has been experimenting with the nature of planes, and they accidentally like built this thing that is now present on the planeswalker net, if that makes any sense. Oh, that's oh wow! Uh, I love it. I love it. Can you go do that? Can you go make <laughs> yeah. this, please. Yeah. After the show, Alex, you and I will just <laughs> we'll send this unsolicited to wizards. Yeah. Uh, 
And I mean, I think <laughs> we're probably going to be returning to Phyrexia. Um, I would imagine in the next year or two. Um, yeah. I can't see us not going back there. There is kind of that element of the more of the, the, <laughs> the other trope that Reinhardt mentioned with kind of the infection or the, it's the assimilation by like organic matter, but we have an organic inorganic plane that has now been at the mercy of the Phyrexians. Well, yeah. what does it mean if we completely go back there? Uh, well, and that could be where we get more sci-fi. Yeah, that, and that's a good point because something that they're going to have to do, well, maybe not have to do, but I would think from a narrative standpoint, they would want to do. The whole point of Phyrexia, especially the infection trope Phyrexia, is that it is very threatening and it's a how do we face this? How do we fight this? How can we stop it? Except right now, it can't leave its own plane. And that means just by the boxes that the narrative has put around it, it is not a really a threat to anywhere else. And so if we go back there, are they going to introduce some elements of that? Because then that makes it a more compelling story, especially if they want to make that, you know, the bolus threat that continues for some time. And maybe they don't. But if they do that, they're going to need some way for that threat to no longer be contained. Oh, man. I can't believe we haven't even gotten to the meditation realm. Bolus is definitely doing some <laughs> science up there. That's where we're going to get it. Because he, yeah. he's, he's, he doesn't have a spark or anything. He's imprisoned. He needs yep. to have a way to travel. Yeah. Space flight. Bull he is needs... flying the Millennium Falcon. No, like, he, it wouldn't be the Millennium yeah. Falcon. Yes. He yes. Would, his, his ship would be shaped like his giant horns. You know it. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then, peop, and then like, people board the ship and they find out that it's, it's like the wreckage of the Predator. Yes. Uh, that he somehow like <laughs> rose out of the, the, the muck. Yep. Um, the I obvious love... best answer for everything is bolus. <laughs> <laughs> I, Alex, I really love what you were saying just before. Um, with uh, you know, we the the new Phyrexians would really need to become uh, a threat, and so we can again we can look back at were the original Phyrexians a threat. Um, after, because after the Brothers' War, you know, they kind of were sealed off again, right? Um, yeah. And so, Karn was kind of Karn, Karn, kind of like inadvertently made the new Phyrexian threat. But before before Phyrexia, old Phyrexia was kind of stopped that first time. Uh, there were all sorts of like sleeper agents everywhere. So uh, an easy way to be yeah. to to kind of introduce them is someone finds a sleeper agent somewhere. Yeah, and that's that's another story that I, I another episode that I think I, I would love to do, but I think that storyline may be tougher because of how the Phyrexians differ now. Right. If you have your uh, you know Elish Norn in Phyrexians, they're not looking to. And they might hide for a little bit, but they're not just hiding to gather information and maybe be, you know, sappers and and blow stuff up from behind enemy lines. They're looking to infect and assimilate. And that's true. And then they don't have anything to assimilate. What happens? I mean, well, and that there's a good question too, Hobbs. That may be what happens when we go back. We may not see the Phyrexians become a threat. We may see that story. Wow. 
Well, I mean, this I, I think that we did a really nice job of kind of hitting on, I think, like you were saying at the top, Reinhardt, that you you said, I, actually, this might have been off air right before we started, that, that you believe that the elements of sci-fi are, are there, right? Like, yes, at least yes. from, even if we're talking more like the science, the science opera or that, you know, if we're talking about kind of that piece to it, we're talking about more, it doesn't have to be, or space opera. It doesn't have to necessarily be the end of it. That's going to be hard science. The elements are there. They, they even are set up to do things like a last outpost or kind of do like, you know, a lot of elements that have science bent to it that we haven't seen, but we, you're saying like we have, we've gotten elements, we've gotten the line almost up there with steampunk and with kind of, the mechs that we had and things that have been in magic history. Yeah, it's re it's a lot of I mean in some ways we are we are in the position of the people on the various different planes. It's about rediscovering those things that have already been there. It's what kind of what Urza did stumbling upon the Capes of Coilos. Yes. Yeah. Discovered this thing that in existed here once. You know, and so we can go back and and really mine the craziness of magic lore and find that yeah these things are there and maybe the writers um can take advantage of that and kind of like blow something up and that's our show for today you can find the host on twitter hops q can be found at hops q and alex newman can be found at mel underscore chronicler send any questions comments thoughts hopes and dreams to at goblin lore pod on twitter or email us at goblinlorepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support your friendly neighborhood gobsmugs, the cast can be found at patreon.com slash goblinlorepod. Opening and closing music by Vindergotten, who can be found on Twitter at Vindergotten, or online at vindergotten.bandcamp.com. Logo art by Steven Raphael, who can be found on Twitter at Steve Raphael. Goblin Lore is proud to be presented by Hipsters of the Coast, as part of their growing Vorthos content, as well as magic content of all kinds. Check them out on Twitter at HipstersMTG or online at HipstersOfTheCoast.com. Thank you all for listening, and remember, goblins, like snowflakes, are only dangerous in numbers. <laughs>